The state of higher education is tumultuous. Not a single week goes by without some story of political activism, unjust cancellation, campus protest, etc. hitting the news. Our universities really don't have to be like this. Rolston College aims to reshape this landscape. Alongside its MA in the humanities, Rolston is launching a summer school teaching Latin in Sicily, Rome and other sites. The program, running from July to September, offers immersive language learning with experts, literary reading, seminars and even archaeological visits. Most importantly, this course is designed for people who have never studied Latin. Anyone in the world can apply, and the strongest applicants will be awarded full scholarships that cover the cost of the entire program. Apply by the 31st of May at rolston.ac forward slash Latin dash program. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissinger. And this is a show for you if you're bored of watching people on the internet having arguments over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our brilliant guest this week is a serial entrepreneur, Mike Driver. Welcome to Trigonometry. Uh, good morning, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you here. You've given away the time of the day that we record the show at, uh, so now people know how to chase us down. Good. <laughs> No problem. Yeah, well, we opened with a joke. <laughs> yeah. no lie. It's like your set, mate. <laughs> Perfect. All over again. Yep, yeah, it's exactly the experience I have uh, every night. Yeah. Now, uh, for we obviously know and love you, but uh, tell everybody who hasn't seen you before, uh, who are you, what do you do, uh, what's your background, what's your story, how are you in the seat that you find yourself in now? Should I start at the beginning? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So I'll start, I'll go back. Uh, I, I uh, went to university. Um, came out uh, of, of university in uh, 1991. Uh, I made the mistake of studying economics and I made the further uh, uh, mistake of uh, taking up a PhD in game theory. It's unfinished and if any of you want to pop back up to Manchester and have a go at it, yeah. then you will fit <laughs> So I came out of, uh, I was persuaded to, to drop that game theory. Well, I was actually a, a approached by my uh, uh, supervisor who told me there were only a few people in the world who understood game theory, and I wasn't one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is game theory, just so? Well, a lot of people, a lot of people relate game theory to the film A Beautiful Mind, uh, okay. Russell Crowe, yeah. uh, John Nash, but actually what got my interest in game theory was, was John von Neumann uh, uh, formulated game theory to try and solve poker. Uh, oh, wow. He failed. Um, and he was a terrible poker player and he lost a lot of money at, at it, which basically summarises my experience in the field. The, the very latest uh, uh, version of game theory, which you might be aware of, was uh, Yanis Varoufakis, who, mm. who we both know. Mm. Uh, well, Yanis felt it was a good idea to try and use game theory uh, to negotiate with the European Commission, uh, the European Union. Uh, I think that uh, he was particularly unsuccessful, and I think you could probably ascribe most of that to the fact that game theory doesn't work in negotiation, which uh, which somewhat undermines its uh, uses, I think, at mm. all. Uh, so, so, so I left there. I was persuaded out of that by uh, a friend of mine uh, who had come back from the Caribbean where he'd been selling timeshare, uh, and he said we should start a business. Mm. Uh, so I said, oh, good. What are we <laughs> going to do? And he said, we'll sell photocopiers. Now, I didn't even know what a photocopier looked like at this time. I'd never seen one. I knew they existed in concept, but I didn't really know what one was. But, you know, anything was better than an academic career. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we started selling photocopiers. We, we, would, uh, we had a, uh, a tiny little room about the size of your studio. I've given away the size of the studio. Just as don't well. give the location <laughs> away, because then we're truly screwed. We had, we had, uh, we had one desk, uh, uh, one phone, 
uh, and a rented brown Hyundai pony. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, a brown pony. Hyundai pony. I don't advise it. <laughs> <laughs> but they were eight quid a day. We had two grand. We had the serviced office, and this is how we started off. And we literally used to collect 50 compliment slips from office buildings in the morning, and we would call those compliment slips in the afternoon. Um, we didn't have a reseller agreement to sell any photocopiers. If we were lucky enough to sell a photocopier, we had to go to somebody who was far more experienced than us, who had a reseller, uh, reseller agreement, and who would extract the maximum profit from us. And that's how we started off. Somehow, uh, by hook or by crook, we grew that business um, over the next 14 years, and went from just the two of us to 300 people, covering the whole of the UK, largest independent in the UK. Um, we really ended up being a technology company, end-to-end -end document management, scan archive, retrieval, print, all of this stuff. And we sold that, or we sold part of that to private equity in uh, 2006. So I have what the Ameri I had then what the Americans call a liquidity moment. <laughs> 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 which, uh, when you're from a background which wasn't particularly uh, wealthy, is quite nice. Uh, I stayed in the, in, in the private equity world uh, uh, for a little while. Uh, the best description I can give you, lovely, lovely gentlemen. I mean, these are lovely human beings, uh, basically, who went to very, very expensive schools and weren't quite intelligent enough to get a job at Goldman Sachs. Yeah. And the best description I can Sounds give like you... Sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> the best description I, I can give you of private equity is they couldn't find a coconut on Coconut Island. Yeah. So right. lovely human beings, no idea about business. <laughs> uh, so so uh, I eventually uh, left that business uh, and I decided that it would be a good idea um, because it was something, again, that I knew absolutely nothing about uh, to go into investment banking or corporate finance. When I'd been selling my business... Uh, quite often your, your options for who can help you sell a business, the advice people give you to sell a business is someone from PwC, KPMG, Deloitte or EY. Mm. Mm, maybe I shouldn't have said all four of those things. <laughs> <anyway>. <laughs> uh, what I would do is I would sit opposite those, those guys and I would think, two questions really. What have you ever done and can I trust you? Mm. And the answer to those questions <laughs> would normally be not very much and probably not. Yeah. So I had the idea is, could we start a business that was providing un unconflicted advice mm. to entrepreneurs? So that's essentially what I do now. Started that business um, and over the last eight years or so, um, we have helped uh, probably 77 businesses either sell or raise funds. Mm. So we've sold over um, two billion pounds worth of entrepreneurially owned businesses. So a little niche providing unconflicted and honest advice mm. to entrepreneurs. So, so I've probably met with more entrepreneurs, I imagine, than most people who are sane. So I meet 70, 80 entrepreneurs every year for the last eight years. There'll be 70, 80 businesses, two or three directors. So I've met literally thousands of entrepreneurs. So and let, let's start with that because one of the most fascinating things I ever heard you talk about was the entrepreneurial mindset. A lot of people kind of look look at videos on the internet and go, oh, how can I become an entrepreneur? And you have a totally different take on what, what makes an entrepreneur. Well, I do. And, and, and yeah, I'm going to sort of invalidate an entire industry here, I think. But, but I don't think you can actually decide to become an entrepreneur. I think the only way you could decide to become an entrepreneur if you could invest in a time machine. I'll, I'll explain why. So, so 
in all of the conversations I've had uh, with entrepreneurs, I always ask uh, the same question. I've, I've been very suspicious of where entrepreneurialism comes from. I think it might be epigenetic. So I always ask the same question um, is, is, what did you do when you were a kid for work? And did you have any challenges or problems when you were younger? And invariably, entrepreneurs will have had difficulties and challenges in their, in their uh, younger years. And the one thing you can guarantee they would have done is they have hustled like crazy when they were kids. They would have, you know, for instance, when I, there's the guy who does the paper round, I was the guy who marked up the papers before you got in to do the paper round because of an extra fiver to be had for marking mm -hmm. the papers up. Did you, I used to sell porn mags at school. New or? Yeah, 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 we used to buy them cheap. And then because we went to a school, and this was in the days of the internet, we used to sell them off for massive markups to... Well, then, you, you obviously have some entrepreneur. Well, you managed to combine both things, the trauma and the entrepreneurial <laughs> thing at the same time, which is quite no, nice. Sorry, just spoke something we carry on. Apologies, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, you learn something uh, new <laughs> every day about yeah, your it wasn't what I expected. business partner. The, the closest thing I, I, I would relate entrepreneurialism to is, is actually anorexia. Okay, so the latest thinking about anorexia is, is it's epigenetic. And epigenetic means that circumstances or the environment cause certain genes to be uh, expressed that wouldn't have otherwise, uh, or over-expressive uh, mm. genes. Uh, in an anorexia, obviously, it's the suppression of appetite, uh, which, which, which the environment and the circumstances cause. And it, you know, we, we're seeing a, a rapid increase in, in incidence of anorexia at the same time as seeing a rapid increase in the prevalence of social media, social media bullying, and so on and so forth being the the adversity, perhaps, that, that causes the expression of the gene. And I think, uh, I, I suspect that something very similar happens to the entrepreneur. Um, it would make sense for entrepreneurialism to be epigenetic. You only want some people to be entrepreneurial. You mm. know, if everybody was entrepreneurial, it would be chaos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, 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 so I, yeah, I think in terms of um, the industry itself, or the industry of, of uh, you know, self-help books, how I made it, you know, yeah, I basically summarise the How I Made It books is, is I went to this news agent to buy my lottery ticket. That, that, that is about the sim a similar amount of information that you will get from, from a story about how somebody made it. Mm. The only real way to become an entrepreneur would be to invent a, uh, a time machine, travel back in time and traumatise yourself at the age of 11. And then, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and then I think you've got... So, so, so I don't think it's something you can learn. I think it's something that, that is inherent. Uh, and, and that... that sounds a little bit unusual, but it, it does explain quite a lot of behaviors uh, of, the, of, of entrepreneurial people. Uh, it feels more like a compunction. It feels like you haven't got any choice. It explains why people carry on even though they've made fantastical amounts of money, which, which you often... They've had their liquidity moment. They yeah. had their liquidity moment, and they're stupid enough to start another business and do it all over again. Yeah. Um, but it also... Uh, more subtly and more importantly, explains uh, a, a mode of behaviour which is essential in entrepreneurialism and does not really uh, manifest in other walks of life. Uh, and this is, is essentially a, a way to deal with an unknown future. So uh, uh, it, it, the future isn't predictable um, because we lack sufficient information. The future is, is not predictable because it is unimaginable. So how do you learn to deal with a future that you cannot predict? Now, what most people do is they try and narrow it down to forecasts and models and all of those kinds of things, which, which 
you know, the future's waiting around the corner with a baseball bat for those guys who are carrying the model. You need to find a way hmm. to, to adapt to the unknown. Uh, what entrepreneurs do is something I call serial redundancy. So serial redundancy is a, is a mode of behavior where a way of looking at it would be little bet poker. So you don't bet all of your money on one good idea. Mm. You trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. Never bet your whole stack. Never, never risk all of your capital. So that when your opportunity comes along, the product that works, whatever it is, you get after it. You know, you've tested the market. The market says yes, and then you take the risk. So it's it's controlled risk. It's not it's risk management. Um, more, more, than, more than is risk-taking. And that, that, that mode of behavior is common across pretty much all of the entrepreneurs that, that I've met. And I think it's unusual that, that uh, a, a cross-section of people from every background, from every uh, race, from every uh, uh, different part of the country and every different part of the world would all follow a very similar pattern, would all follow a very similar mode of behavior. And I think that traces back to them being faced with challenges. The challenges in youth might have been positive challenges, by the way, but usually it will have been stress. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's very Darwinian, uh, if you think about it. You need stress in a system for a system to progress. Um, it's interesting you say that. I remember uh, I'm a big fan of basketball, and I remember uh, watching a few coaches in America discussing uh, how they scout players. And one of them said, I, I, never, I never pick a player from a house with two cars. In other words, if the parents were wealthy, the child isn't going to have the drive that it takes to really be so determined to fight through the injuries, to compete at that level, to not get comfortable once they get to a certain stage and just to keep going. And I think a lot of what you're talking about actually applies to sport quite a lot as well. A lot of the people who make it to the very top in sport seem to be coming from that kind of place. Well, I think it's the same. The other comparison I'd make with sport is the, is the thing that you need to be very comfortable with as an entrepreneur is the word no. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as comedians, we hear that a lot, yeah. both well, from promoters and audience. I, I, was, I was looking before I came today, and I was, I was just looking back at the last 25 years, uh, and I reckon I've probably done 6,000 face-to-face meetings mm. in, in the last 20, 25 mm. years, selling something, a service or product or or solution or business or whatever it might be. Uh, and my hit rate in those 6,000 meetings is probably about 20%. Mm. Now that sounds okay, four no's for one yes. But actually to set those 6,000 meetings in the first place probably took 600,000 contacts. Wow. That makes your success rate, or my success rate, not yours, I'm sure, more than 0.2% of people laugh at your, your jokes when you're in a... Not on, no, the, no. <laughs> not on this podcast, anyway. <laughs> so so that, that, leaves, that leaves you with a success rate of about 0.2%. Uh, um, yeah. so what's even more interesting, if you, if, you, if you kind of take it to the next level, if you think about negotiation, which is an interesting topic at the moment, mm. um, if you actually look at those 0.2% of times that I have been successful, within the negotiations, I mostly lose. Mm. You mostly lose until someone says yes. So you lose the little battles along the way and eventually someone says yes. So if you actually look at the, the actual times, that, the actual conversations where you have come out on top, they're a tiny fraction of the 600,000 times that you attempted to speak to somebody. So you're hearing no. Uh, at almost pathological mm. level. 
Um, and I always say that, that winning is easy. Yeah. yeah, I know how to lose. Yeah, and that that's one of the ways I would define that. Yeah. Mm. The entrepreneur, the entrepreneur isn't somebody. And we we see survivorship bias. We see the winners, and we see them being very good at winning. Actually, most of us we get here because we're very good at losing. Mm. It's fascinating that you say that, and you're talking about the mindset because the average person wouldn't be able to hear no that many times without thinking. Do you know what? This isn't for me. I just don't have it in me. Whereas the entrepreneur or somebody who is truly dedicated to what they want to do will push through. It's like the story of Mark Ruffalo, who went years when he started out without getting an audition, you know, living in his car, all the rest of it. But it's that desire and the determination to push through that really sets the successful people apart in many ways. And also, in a way, Mark Ruffalo probably had some contemporaries. Yeah. Yeah. People who never made it. And, and, and the entrepreneurial world has, has thousands and thousands and thousands of people who never make it. Actually, we all owe them a debt of gratitude. They're the people that we should be thanking, really, because we are statistical anomalies. That, that's, what, that's what we are, really. We're not, we're not something that, uh, that can be constructed. We're something that emerges from continued interactions in the economy. Most people fail, and we've got those people to thank. We can never be sure. And one of the most interesting subjects, I think, you, you really don't want to think about it because most entrepreneurs think, that, like, let, let, let me give you three categories of entrepreneur. There's th those that make it by dint of, of, of being, uh, you know, fantastic business people, huge amount of, of empathy, uh, huge amount of understanding of, of their market, remarkable in every way, fantastic human beings, okay? So that's, that's the first category. The second category would be uh, those that make it by dint of having an awkward personality. Okay, mm. <laughs> and the third category would be the lucky. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We all think we're in the first category. Yeah, yeah. The reality is we're in some combination of the above. And mm. what what's uh, difficult for most entrepreneurs to to reconcile is separating the luck and the skill, which is, which is difficult, I think, in in, in all, yeah. all all walks of life. And you see very often where where people have been very very successful. Uh, in one business and they're not very successful in the next. Now they just might be unlucky in the mm. second business but they might have been lucky in the first business. Mm. So, so, but we all think we're in category one. Obviously. That thing about I, the, I'm the in nose. category one. <laughs> just, just, just wait, 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 first of all, can I just say, I love the way Michael was talking about we as if you and I have had yeah, our liquidity yeah, yeah, moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. Our liquidity yeah. moment is a couple of years off, Mike, yeah. uh, with this show. We're, uh, we're, we're almost not having to pay for ourselves anymore. Which is I, know, yeah. I know, I know, I know. We're, we're progressing. Yeah, and advertisers will be flocking after this. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Like, I, I think PwC and EY want to get on yeah, board. Yeah, 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 exactly. They, they want a, a trigonometry sponsorship. Uh, listen, let me ask this because on the no thing, it's interesting because um, I remember doing some research on this. I was doing kind of like a personal development course at one point and they were talking about this Eastern European guy, I can't remember which country he's from, um, who was, help, he was a psychologist who was brought in to deal with people at the time when call centers had just emerged, like mm. uh, cold calling people on the phone. Mm -hmm. And what they were, they were, they, they were having literally approach anxiety to the phone because it was very uncommon in those days for someone to just call you out of the blue and start selling you something. Mm. So these people would pick up the phone, call someone up, and the reaction would be, get fucked. 
Yeah. Pretty much straight yeah. away, right? Uh, so he was having to deal with them. What he did is he got them to go out and make ridiculous requests of other people, to, like go to McDonald's and order a pizza or or go to a Chinese restaurant and order a burger or something like that. And and he, he managed to train them out of having that negative reaction by just continually exposing them to that. And I think that resilience, it can be learned uh, in terms of being able to kind of take a no so many times. Whether people necessarily want to put them in that themselves in that position is obviously a different story, right? Can it be learned? I think what he's, he's taught them something slightly different to what the call center is asking them to achieve. Hmm. So, so what they've done is they've learned to get over the initial embarrassment of speaking to a complete stranger. Yeah. They're probably, they, they, it probably helps to be doing that in a group of other people who are getting over the initial mm. embarrassment of spe speaking to a complete stranger. I don't think what he is able to teach them, and this probably goes back to what, what I was talking about before, he's not able to teach them to have the necessary empathy to convert that person that they've got over the embarrassment of talking to to convert them into whatever the call to action is for the, for the phone call. I, I guarantee no matter how many psychologists or how successful he was about getting him over the initial hurdle of the embarrassment, there will have been 20% of people who, or, or smaller even, but 20% of people is the usual number, who would have been able, who had the sufficient empathy, if you like, to, to, to convert that phone call into, into a sale or whatever, whatever the course of action is. So, so I don't think he was necessarily teaching them an entrepreneurial skill. Mm. He was teaching them a, a useful life skill. Yeah. You know, don't be embarrassed when you ask somebody a really annoying and stupid question. <laughs> you two seem to have... We keep getting slammed. Yeah. Yeah. I know, I know, I know. Um, Mike, you, we were talking about the mindset of an entrepreneur and you, you related it to trauma. How much of it do you think an entrepreneur has a desire for control? And how much of it do you think stems from control? Because you were compared it to anorexia. Mm. I used to work in a girls' school. My girlfriend's a psychologist, and she used to work in a centre for teenagers with eating disorders. And she used to, I remember her explaining to me about anorexia, that it's about control. It's about yeah. controlling your portion size. It's feeling in a world where you're surrounded by chaos, but you can control this one thing, yet that makes you feel more secure in yourself. Do you think entrepreneurs, being an entrepreneur comes from that? In that, I have my business, I can control this, I can control that, I can control these elements of it? I think it could be that, okay? That is definitely one possibility. Uh, I think that will possibly be for a number of entrepreneurs. What I think it more likely to be mm. is that people are uncontrollable. So, so I think, I, think I, I go back to what I said before about it not feeling like a choice. Uh, that most people who, who become entrepreneurs, who, who, who go on to do this sort of thing, they've had jobs along the way. Uh, and the moment that they are told to do something, they feel a slight deep-seated desire not to do it. Yeah. Uh, yes, because, I'm, like, yeah. I'm totally like that. Yes. Because, because, yeah. because, because yeah. so, so I, I, I probably go the other way. But I, I, I take your point um, uh, on the on the control side. That we tend we tend to be control freaks. Mm -hmm. You know, we we do tend to we do tend to. You have to. Uh, a, a really interesting example of somebody who isn't an entrepreneur, in my opinion, because uh, literally because he, he, he's, he is displayed not having any control-free careers. Luke Johnson, I don't know if you've seen recently the Patisserie Valerie uh, situation. Yeah, where, they're, they're, yeah where, 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 where they, they've discovered a, a 94 million pound hole in the accounts. Mm. Now, a true control-freak entrepreneur 
will be able to tell you the margin in every chocolate cake that he sells, let alone how much money he's got in the bank account to the nearest 94 million. Mm. So, so you, it's interesting, Luke Johnson wrote the entrepreneur column in the back of the Sunday Times, gonna be in trouble now, aren't I? You know, <laughs> which, is, which, is, which is very interesting because, uh, and then, uh, and this goes to, to what I was saying about the future being unimaginable. You know, yeah. when he was sat comfortably writing his missives about entrepreneurialism in the Sunday Times, he had no way of forecasting that next year the accountants would find a 94 million pound hole in the accounts of his business. Mm. Um, so so I, I, I think the control is a necessary element of entrepreneurial behavior, but I think the thing that shoves you into it is, is, is actually the inability to submit to control, mm. if that makes sense. So it's in the same. And how much of that is distrust in systems? Because I remember that my, my, my dad was a solicitor and he, um, he went into local government because he believed it was safe and it was stable and that it would provide him with regular employment. I remember um, my father, for no fault of his own, uh, lost his job. And I always remember him coming to pick me up when I was 15 and him saying, I've lost my job. And we were going back and we, there was no way of paying for things. And my mum ended up uh, going back to uh, Venezuela for a bit and being in this bit of in this episode of chaos and me realizing at the age of 15, oh, there is no, there's no safety. There is no safety net. It's all illusory in many ways. Do you think entrepreneurs have a distrust of those particular systems as well, where they feel, you know what, no one's gonna have my back. I've got to do it for myself. Yeah, well, I think, I think what most people suffer from is a delusion of control. It, yeah. it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't really exist. I think what most entrepreneurs, and they might not even be able to elucidate it, but what they instinctively feel, and, and, and we've evolved uh, over millennia, uh, instinct and humility as a way of dealing with a lack of control, mm -hmm. as a way of dealing yeah. without being able to uh, uh, control the future. And, and I think what, what pretty much all entrepreneurs do is they instinctively realize is that they cannot control the future. So to take your unfortunate situation, mm. if you like, um, you you had the opposite of redundancy. Yeah. Your, your father had all his eggs yeah. in one basket, in a job that ultimately he had no control on the des of the destiny of, mm. if you like. He had, he had everything on red. Yeah. The ball lands in black mm. and here you are yeah. Yeah, mm. in the situation you're at. I think what entrepreneurs instinctively realize is, is there's always a chance. Um, that it can go to shit. I remember when we, <laughs> I remember, I remember we first got, we first did a deal with private equity and my first, I was forced then to, to produce a budget and a forecast. It's something that I, I'd always avoided previously. And uh, I was asked by the guy from PwC, you know, what's this cost line here, 50,000 pound a month? And I said, well, it's for the shit. <laughs> he said, what shit? Well, I said the shit that we don't know what it is yet. Mm. Yeah. Take it out. You know, take it out. Mm. So, so what, what you were, uh, what your situation was, is you were, you were strangely, you were optimized. Yeah. yeah. Optimization is really bad. You mm. know, nature doesn't op optimize. Evolution doesn't optimize. The only way we, you, evolution progresses is by mutation. Mm. You know, op optimization is an is a, is a, is a, optimization is an evolutionary cul-de-sac. Mm. So you had everything on red. It came up in black. And what an entrepreneur instinctively realizes is never to put everything on red. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that goes back to what before I was talking about, serial redundancy and how you give yourself multiple points of failure. And I, I, the way I describe it is what an entrepreneur does actually 
isn't even necessarily coming up with a great idea. What they do is they fall over opportunity. So mm. I say stay alive to fall over opportunity. It's a really good examples of this. So take Amazon, for instance. Amazon's uh, online retail business is, is, is debatable whether that's even profitable. I would say that if you were to factor in the way they pay the staff, so, so stock-based remuneration, it possibly isn't even profitable, which would be a surprise to most people. Wow. Now, uh, what they do have is a very, very profitable web, ho web hosting business called AWS. Now, AWS, they fell over, okay? They built the, they built the, the, uh, uh, the web hosting facility, mm -hmm. the, the, the uh, Amazon Web Services for their own business in order to sell you shit that they can't make any money on the internet. And then one day they wake up and go, Christ, we could sell this to other people. Mm. Mm. Now that is a hugely profitable business that Bezos never came up with it. He, he never thought to himself, mm. I'm going to go, he said, I'm going to go and be the everything store. He never said, I'm going to go and uh, you know have, have this cloud business that's going to be the most successful. The cloud didn't even exist when he started off. So I think that what entrepreneurs do is they stay alive long enough mm. to fall over opportunity. Uh, it, it, and again, what we do afterwards is we meet normal human beings, and normal human beings want rational explanations for things. Mm. So rather than say, well, it just fell on me, you know, and it was there, and I thought, oh, wow, mm. you know, let's do it. Well, I started off with this strategy, and yeah. I wrote this business plan. Yeah. I mean, it's all hindsight bias and post hoc. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting point, Mike, because a mutual friend of ours actually tells a story about Jack D, the famous comedian here in the UK, yeah. uh, who has this very sour, dour personality. Uh, and apparently, uh, this was he was struggling as a comedian. He really wasn't having much head, not getting very far, and uh, with a kind of normal character, like a normal comedian. And then one day, he got so fed up with the whole comedy world and with comedy and how he was doing that he turned up at this gig and he was like, you know what, fuck it, I'm just going to... One last time, I'm just going to do this last gig. And he was really angry and kind of frustrated. And that frustration is what he brought to the stage. And suddenly he found himself doing really well. Like he stumbled onto this thing. Uh, and it's fascinating because I think what you're talking about really is in some ways the power of resilience as well, which is you keep going until something falls in your lap. It's interesting. Um... There's a, there's a book called Anti-Fragile by Anasim Taleb, who we, we both met yeah. uh, at Kilconomics. Uh, he actually goes one step beyond resilience. So mm. he talks about things that exhibit convexity, and, and things that exhibit convexity are, are things that benefit from stress. So it's not just being mm. able to withstand stress. Mm. It's, the, it's the stress actually, the stress in the system actually improves your, your performance. Yeah. And, and I, would, I would go as far as to say that all, all of the no's that you get as a, an entrepreneur is convex to no's, for mm. what, what of a better way of putting yeah. it, is you actually get better. You, you, you don't think to yourself, uh, oh my God, I'm a terrible human being, everyone hates me. Mm. You think, I just need to be a little bit better. Yeah. What did I get wrong in that conversation? What could I have said differently? What didn't I understand about that person? And, and so you are benefiting from what, what other people would see, or certainly uh, the majority of humans would see as stresses. Mm -hmm. um, but you're getting better as a result of interacting with those stressful situations that you're improving every day. So, uh, uh, but you, you can't continue to improve, interestingly, if you, you don't survive. So the, the most important thing is to avoid ruin. Yeah. You know, if no one had laughed at Jack D when he became a sour face guy, mm. that's it, he's mm. done, he's yeah. gone. Yeah. You know, he's not in the game anymore. And who yeah. knows, you know, if he, if he hadn't said, this is the last time, if he would said, this is the second to last time, and Sourface hadn't worked, maybe a different personality would have made the, the next time, mm. 
And I think that's what also what defines a, uh, defines an entrepreneurial mindset. Mm. Yeah, we're, we're almost congenitally incapable of saying, this is it, I'm not doing it again. Mm. <laughs> it's a bit like comedians. Yeah, yeah, it's, way, it's it? very much like comedians, except the entrepreneurs don't pretend to be left wing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I might be the only one that ever has. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mike, um, at what point does resilience and all these amazing qualities in getting through it and working hard, mm. at what point does that tip into self-delusion? Because we've all met that person who talks a great game and I'm you know, using a metaphor of comedy then gets up on that stage and you're like, oh my God, mate, you, you need to cut it now. Look, I, I, think, I think I'll probably go back to answer that question and I'll go back to the people who don't make it. Yeah. You know, and it's probably the same in, uh, in comedy is it the same, is the same as entrepreneurialism. Yeah. You're actually riding off the backs of the people who never, who never made it. Yeah. You know, you need all the, if everybody who stood up on stage, who decided they were funny, was funny, it would be a very crowded stage, mm. wouldn't it? Yeah. So, mm. so we're all kind of right. So I, I, I think, I think you, get, you get two things for people who try and make it as an, an entrepreneur. You get the people who just try, and it doesn't work out, and they go back to doing uh, a normal job and all that kind of thing, and mm. that's great. But what you get at the other end, which is probably, I think, I think sort of where you're aiming at, is something they call acquired psychopathy. <laughs> 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 and, and, and I was asked, I was asked a question recently at a show, uh, a Kill Economics show, where, where somebody said, why do people in the UK or people in Europe sell their businesses and people in the United States just keep going? And my answer was, we're not psychopaths. Mm. You know, so you get an English guy yeah. or a German guy or whatever. And, you know, he can pay the kids' school fees. He can, he can buy a nice house in Spain and drive a decent car and put enough money away. Oh, you know, I'll, I'll take that. You know, he probably starts again. But, he, you know, he's relatively balanced in, in the way he thinks. Uh, you know, in America, no. They, they want to take over the world, you know. Yeah. And uh, uh, not, not only that is they want to remake the world into something that, that they recognize. And I, and I think we see that with... There's a controversial point for you with somebody like Bill Gates and what the Gates Foundation is doing mm. in Africa at the moment. Is that really helping? Uh, mo many, many scholars, there's a, there's a book called The Tyranny of Experts. If you want to sort of, it's kind of current this with the kind of controversy around uh, comic relief mm. lately. Yeah. Mm. Um, but if you want to research this a little bit more, there's a really interesting book by William Easterly called The, the Tyranny of Experts. Mm. Uh, really, what we should be giving to people in developing countries is uh, freedom. Uh, and what we shouldn't be doing is imposing Western solutions from Western companies. Um, pretty much all of the solutions that you'll find that uh, Mr. Gates recommends will be coming from people like Monsanto. You know, you have to, you have, to have certain pesticides, certain crops, uh, and you become beholden to the West. You might make some initial progress, but, but you become beholden to the West. And what we really need to do, which is far more difficult to do, because the conduit of, if you like, of, uh, of uh, aid is much easier when you've got a despot. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Now, what we really should be doing, and we have proved to be spectacularly bad at, is formulating freedoms where people can start their own businesses and make their own way uh, in, in a society. And that's obviously much harder. So I think, I think you get this thing at the very top end where people are, you know, become literally trying to remake the world in a, in a, in a way that they, they perceive it to be right. Uh, and that may or may not be helpful to the rest of us. 
All right, well, we can wrap up the entrepreneurial section by saying, if you're not already an entrepreneur, don't even try. <laughs> <laughs> and if you are an entrepreneur, you're probably a fucking psychopath. So <laughs> we can just leave it there. Um, but my, we started just there talking about some stuff that's a bit different. And I've always really enjoyed um, listening to you talk about different ideas because you have a very counterintuitive set of ways of thinking about stuff. So you've mentioned in the past that the way we think about everything is wrong. Or, or maybe misguided, or that we, you know, w what is it that we kind of don't get about how the world is or ought to be? In your well, let, let's take uh, politics, which I think is a, a, an interesting example at the moment. So um, people think, or, or have thought for for many many years, that the battleground is is this left v right, mm. um, which which you see, you know, uh, to, to some greater or lesser degree mm. uh, across the world. See, see, I I I don't agree with that at all. I think the real battleground that we face now is between command and control technocrats mm. on one side and adapt and survive emergence on the other. So, so I think we might be the least percep uh, perceptive and most dangerous people who ever lived. Um, I, I mentioned before about the uh, ed educational uh, institutionalization of hubris um, above humility. Yeah, we, we believe, uh, if we think rationally, um, that we can understand and therefore control and predict everything. Um, this is a delusion. Um, we live life forwards into mystery. Uh, something I said before about the future being unpredictable. Mm. Um, it, it's unpredictable not because we can't understand enough about what's going to happen, it's unpredictable because what's going to happen is literally unimaginable. Um, a good example, shall I go do an example yeah, of that? Of yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Of is, is, is I'm quite sure how old you guys are. But uh, um, acting age 28 to 32. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so is this what you put on your Tinder account? Yeah, or, do yeah, we, yeah. or do we have a, a Tinder account? So I, yeah. I want to talk, uh, talk about internet Internet dating is be, mm. being a good example of, of something which has is, is changed the world, which is being completely unimaginable. So, so when I when I first started, uh, you know, looking to date people of the opposite sex, you know, one would go to a public house and drink, mm. and and that would be the circumstances whereby you would overcome your fears without the help of a, a, a Eastern European psychiatrist. <laughs> I, 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 I walk up to people for the members of the opposite when you sex. Said, when you mm -hmm. said the word Eastern European, I thought you were going to take that <laughs> in a wholly different direction, Mike. This, this, was, this was the 80s. Um, I would have loved it if here in every Weatherspoon says an Eastern European psychiatrist going, now you must approach woman <laughs> she is open to receive you don't need alcohol <laughs> so you see you've got a set of circumstances if you like where, where you meet people yeah. and and the the advent of tinder at that point it's not like you you were unable to predict it you didn't have it's outside mm. the realm of possibilities mm. the internet didn't exist Berners-Lee hadn't done the first HTML page or or whatever whatever he did uh, and, and I don't know if he had dating in mind. He probably had porn in mind when he invented the internet. I <laughs> but uh, to, 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 to me, as the, as the pre-internet person, the concept of, of uh, Tinder w would be completely alien as to be uh, sure. impossible to predict. Whereas the thing is, um, apparently now, the internet is where the majority of people meet. Mm. So they are meeting for a, 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 and basing their initial contact on a completely different set of criteria 
to the drunken criteria that we based it on in the 80s, yeah? Mm. Which was definitely helpful to certain people. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, very diplomatic of you. <laughs> but uh, but if, you look at, if you look at the way people meet now, they meet through a different set of criteria. Mm. But what's actually the outcome of that? The outcome of that is new relationships. The outcome of new relationships is a whole different and new set of human beings who couldn't possibly have existed prior to the internet. Mm. So, and, and, and that is going to create an entirely different society that couldn't have existed because these people will be the people who make the progress in medicine or, you know, turning, you know, su sunlight into effective, whatever they do into effective power, uh, they will take us forward or backwards. The, 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 the dictate, future dictator of the world will be in this, this population of people who could not, not have existed without Tinder. Mm. Um, uh, and that is completely and utterly unpredictable. Yeah. But, sorry. sorry. No, 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 because I was going to say, it, it just sparked something in me because I was reading about how the nightclub industry said that they're, their business model has been really badly affected by Tinder because the only, like in our generation, the only reason you really went to a nightclub was to try and get laid. But now it's you just go online. So why go to a nightclub? Bars and pubs well, read, and places. I used to go just for dancing, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I, read, I read an article where, where the, the stats, someone argued that the stats in the NBA mm. on, on away wins yeah. in, in, the, in the basketball mm. ha, had steadily increased. So people, the, the stats for scoring away from home had increased. Yeah. And they put down to the fact that the players didn't go to nightclubs anymore because they didn't need to. Mm. Really? So they wouldn't go to a nightclub before the game. They wouldn't. Drink a load of you know champagne or whatever they whatever they get get down them in the in the nightclub and then they were better the next day. Mm. So uh, there may be some there may be some. Uh... So why do we feel the need to predict then? If we if predictions don't actually work as you say and they're essentially a fallacy, why do we feel the need to predict? Why do people get paid so much to predict? Um, fear. Mm. Okay, so 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 the delusion that that somehow. Um, and, and, and this, this comes down to um, what, we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to classify, we're trying to cat categorize, we're trying to model uh, the future. So we, we, we put things in categories, we classify things, and then we model uh, in order to be able to predict what happens in the future. And we do that because we're afraid, because people don't like to think that they don't know what's coming around mm. the corner. Mm. Uh, I mean, that, that, I, in this country, that could be described as a middle-class malaise. So, so you see it really in the way middle-class parents want to educate their kids with an inch of their lives. <laughs> <laughs> I, had, uh, I, had, uh, I sold the business a few years ago. Uh, one of the guys who's in the investment company that bought the business was explaining to me that his nanny uh, needed to speak Mandarin because his wife uh, would be speaking French uh, and he would possibly speak English, but he wasn't sure whether he was going to speak English at home yet because the children would obviously get the English at school yet. So he was considering whether to learn another language. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and speak to his children <laughs> in a non-native language. Yeah, you can't yeah. bollock your kid in a non-native language. My mum's a fluent, my mum's native tongue is Spanish. When she was angry at me, it was always Spanish that she went to. And so you were familiar with many, many Spanish swear words? Yes, I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The first words I ever learned were, que coño estás haciendo, which means, 
what the vagina do you think you're doing? <laughs> Don't think it's going to work over here. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't work grammatically. In fact, this, this podcast will probably not be broadcast now you've said that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, mate. This, this podcast, what we've said so far is entirely acceptable within yeah. the remit of what we do here. Um, but we do need to be able to, to make decisions, though, Mike, right? about the future, like we need to be able to make electoral decisions, we need to be able to make negotiating decisions, we need to be able to try and have some idea of the future, paths that are available to us so that we can choose between them, right? So how do we do that in a world where we recognize if that what you're saying is true? There, there, there's no such thing as certainty. And mm. I, think, I think that's where you start from. You, mm. start, you start from a position where, I mean, a really good example of this is, is the current debate that, that we're having at the moment or, or not having at the moment in this country, which is which is between between remain uh, and, and leave. Uh, and one of the things that I think is is I, I've been fairly ambivalent on this. I'm probably probably the only person who, who initially sat on the fence. Um, uh, and one of the things I've noticed with with remain, uh, the remain argument is that, is that nearly half the population seem to have become experts in economics, business, <laughs> <laughs> negotiation. That and, is so true. And, and uh, and, and they are absolutely certain. Um, and there, there, is, there is certainly, and there, there can be no argument mm. that we do not know uh, the path uh, that will be followed if we stay. There is, there is uncertainty in staying. Whether there is more uncertainty in staying or more uncertainty in leaving is, is a matter for debate. But it is completely remiss to imagine that there is some certainty uh, in a European Union uh, and look, you know, we, we, we're not allowed to have a debate where those people who want to leave are, are, are able to elucidate a, a leave argument on the basis of economics or on the basis uh, 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 of some flaws that they perceive in the European Union. They've all been uh, tarred with a certain brush, you know, which is, which, is, which is really disappointing. But I think it's a really good example where, where you have nearly half the, the population, and I'm probably doing most of them a disservice, but certainly the vocal uh, elements of the Remain campaign who are absolutely certain of something. And I think if, if, if both sides um, were a little bit more open to the, the uncertainty of either course of action, it might have been a little bit less divisive. It's interesting you say that because Francis and I both voted Remain. Because we're good people. There we go. That's a, that's, a, that's a recurring joke on the show that pisses off most of our viewers. But, but now people have started to demand it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We get we, comments. Yeah, yeah. We get Twitter comments saying, when are you going to start selling T-shirts? We say, I voted Remain because I'm a good person. <laughs> well, no, no. Well, the, the, the sell of Remain is, a, is, 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 is you, you are immediately imbued with moral, moral superiority yeah. to the Leave people. Yeah. So, yeah. so, you know, I, I understand why that's a popular... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, so, so we both voted to remain, but we are both increasingly uncomfortable at just how polarizing this issue has been and how certain people are that what they're saying is like, like I'm at the point where I voted to remain in the first referendum, but I feel like given that we're sliding away from what the people actually voted for, if there was a second referendum, I may well vote to leave uh, and to support that decision. And what you've said has given me so much kind of understanding of my own view because... I've always felt that it's an issue that's not clear. Mm. It's an issue on which there are no guaranteed outcomes. And the idea that, you know, I voted Remain, but the idea that I knew what was going to happen and I know what's going to happen if we don't leave and I know what's going to happen if we leave is ridiculous. I have no idea what's going to happen. I, I think there's incredible cognitive dissonance on 
the Remain side. Um, there, there is, without a doubt, the euro is an incredibly flawed mm. uh, mechanism. You know, you can't have a single currency without fiscal union. Yep. You can't have fiscal union without political union. And is political union even something that could ever happen? I, I, I very, very much doubt it. So you've got a currency which has benefited Germany at the core, uh, impoverished the southern states uh, and led to incredible um, unemployment and the complete annihilation of the of the Greek economy, although it is coming back now, um, which is testament to the resilience uh, <laughs> of the Greeks, who, who are absolutely fantastic. Um, but but that you know there is a flaw right at the heart of the European project, mm. and yet nobody, you know, very rarely will anyone accept. Yes, well, okay. We want to stay, but we realise that we're we're only safe because we've still got the pound. So, so if, if maybe if someone on the Remainer side say we want to stay, but we can guarantee we'll never give up the pound and we'll always be slightly addended to the European project, that might have been a, a little bit of a better um, a, a, a promotory tool than to say if you don't vote uh, to remain, then you're a racist, which mm. I think hasn't hasn't helped at all. Um, so, so I, I exactly. Uh, agree with you. Um, it is it is not clear either way, um, and anyone who is aware of history that goes back further than 1939 probably isn't optimistic about uh, uh, a union of countries lasting uh, forever because mm. they never do. They always break up. Mm. And how much of it is do you think people just want to buy into an easy narrative? and then go, I do this, I vote remain, therefore this means this, this and this. Whereas it takes time and it takes the ability to sit and reflect, uh, which is what you've done. Whereas well, also, the more you reflect, the, the more complicated the issue becomes. Like the more you try and learn about a subject, yeah. the harder it becomes almost to be certain. And that's, I think, the issue, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. I think the European Union uh, contains some great, Opportunities, you know, the ability to, to, to go and work in, in other countries, you know, for, for young people in the UK is, is a great thing. Um, but it contains a, an awful lot of flaws. I mean, I, I go back to cognitive dissonance. Mm. You look at, say, uh, Mr. Juncker, who is president of the European Commission. So Mr. Juncker, previously uh, Prime Minister of Luxembourg, uh, previously Finance Minister of Luxembourg. So I saw a lovely graph and you look at the <laughs> amount of tax-avoiding uh, businesses and the amount of tax-avoiding uh, businesses who's registered uh, in, in Luxembourg and the amount of uh, tax uh, that's, you know, uh, uh, revenue that's funneled through Luxembourg at a low tax, in a low tax environment. Uh, and it's nothing when uh, Mr. Uh, Juncker started as finance minister. And by the time we get to today, Luxembourg is one of the biggest uh, facilitators of tax avoidance uh, in the world. So, so it's quite difficult. Obviously, uh, you, the Remain argument has sold moral superiority to those people who, who've bought that, that side of the argument. The reality is there's some pretty unsavoury details within the European Union itself. And certainly, if you look at the way uh, Luxembourg, um, the Netherlands and Ireland have benefited from uh, having, shall we say, uh, useful tax regimes for <laughs> multinationals. Mm. It does make you wonder. I, I, I often say uh, about uh, about tax avoidance is it, it's best envisaged 
as a, a massive pile of uh, premature baby monitors. So you know when a when a when a, mm. when, a, when a when a when a baby is born prematurely and they put him in this yeah. they put the baby in this yeah. lovely thing and it keeps them alive. So so every time one of the big four facilitates a tax avoidance scheme in Luxembourg, we've got less of them. Yeah. So I try to imagine a, yeah. a beach on the Caribbean, that's a hole on the beach in the Caribbean that's been filled with essential medical equipment, mm. Mm. and that's that's what that's what tax uh, tax avoidance. Uh, notice I'm not saying evasion. That's mm. what tax avoidance facilitates. Mm. Now, uh, Jean Claude Juncker at the top, uh, there is an incredible amount of circumstantial evidence, although he denies it, to say that in some way he facilitated the removal of essential medical equipment from mm. our our. Uh, our hospitals and our, 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 our society, and it passed through Luxembourg, was never taxed, and the corporates concerned uh, now have large cash piles in the Cayman Islands or, or where they have them, instead of us spending that money on essential services in the UK. So, so it's not straightforward. Mm. I think that's such an important issue as well. Like I think 10 or 15 or 20 years from now, we're gonna look back on the tax structures around the world that allow these things to happen and we're going to go how was that even possible you know what i mean like th this idea that people can just put billions of pounds away into these places and not pay any tax at all on it uh that the russian oligarchs can just stash all their money in, in this place without paying any tax on it we're going to look back on that and go how was that how was that even possible well we might look back at even even more credulously because uh what, they, what we then hear is, how do we pay for it? Uh, if somebody wants a particular project, or somebody wants to do something useful in society, what we hear, all we hear from politicians is, oh, well, you know, there's priorities. How do we pay for it? Well, I maintain there is enough money. Uh, if we just collected the taxes that are on the statute, if we collected the, the taxes on products and services that are sold in this country in the correct manner, uh, we don't need any new laws. Um, uh, there is enough money for us to do all of the things that we'd love to do to help uh, people less fortunate. Um, but I think it's even more, I think it's even more important than that. So, so uh, human beings, um, are, I think, human beings are, uh, it, it, classical economists would have as neoclassical maximizers, okay? That's bullshit. What, <laughs> what we are uh, was Darwinian competitors, yeah? yeah. Mm. Uh, this, a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of explanation in the Bre Brexit vote here. So, so what, what, uh, what um, Remainers tend to think is if these people get richer, who are very rich, get richer, but these people come up a little bit with them, then everybody should be happy. Mm. Or what the Darwinian competitor theory says, actually, I want you down here. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm competing with you. I'm not looking at my, yeah. my nominal. There's a lot of evidence world. for this, actually, yeah. that inequality essentially makes people at the top and at the bottom feel less good about themselves, be more, uh, more unsafe, have more mental health problems, yeah. etc. because we're competing with each other. What that, what that Darwinian competitiveness that we have does is it pushes money, profits, mm. up the pyramid mm. to the people at the top. That's just how it is. We, mm. we compete with each other and those people at the top, uh, you know, what they want to do and what they are doing is they pull the ladder up. When they get there, they pull the ladder up and they want to keep other people the people at the bottom from getting up to the top of where they, where they are. Uh, and the history of man uh, since, since we, you know, walked out of the bush or climbed down from the tree is, is uh, you know, more feudalism than it is democracy. Mm. Yeah. So, so there is a, a serious side to it. The whole point of taxing the people at the top 
is to get it, the money going the other way. Mm. And you want to get this circular motion. So, so it's not that you don't want uh, inequality or in some way that you're going to stamp inequality out. What you want is the people at the top not to stay at the top. And if they do stay at the top, they have to work very hard to stay there. And you want this, this opportunity and this, this circularity, this circular flow. Uh, and if you don't tax the people at the top, what will they do? They will do what people have done, is they will pull the ladder up and establish their feudal empire. So, so it's actually, it goes to much more than just having money to buy shit. Mm. It goes to getting that hedonic treadmill going where, where we have a society, where we have that, that movement, opportunity of movement for everybody. If we don't tax people, the people at the top will stay. If we tax people too much, they'll stop working. So you have this, what you have, in, going right back to the beginning, if you like, where I said the battle between, isn't really between the right and the left. The right and the left both hold untenable views about the economy. So the right say that by all of us acting in our selfish interest, the, the, the perfect solution will somehow pop out of a benevolent society, yeah? Mm. Well, that's clearly unlikely and we end up with the, the feudal situation. Mm. What the left say is that somehow they will change us into, into our human nature, into becoming benevolent. Mm. That's not gonna happen no. either. No. No. So, so we have to accept both. We have mm. to get both things working. So look, competing with each other, profit's gonna go up to the top. Government taxes correctly, not too much, not too little and it injects that money into the base of the pyramid to give opportunities to people to get up to the top of the pyramid. And if you stop doing that, I, I don't think we need new taxes. I think we have sufficient taxes, we just need to collect them. So which ones are we not collecting then? Well, what, what we have interestingly is we have uh, in, in the revenue, we have, uh, tax, you know, we have tax inspectors, tax collectors, and so on and so forth. What we need to do is we need to fund the difficult cases. Yeah? So the difficult, cases so we need to look at everything that was done in Luxembourg so there's a recent leak of all the tax avoidance that was done we need to unpick that is it legal I'm going to say much of it isn't legal mm. you know because it has a barrister's opinion because it was approved by a, a big four accountant doesn't mean it's legal so we just need to fund um, the revenue to chase the difficult people what the revenue tends to do as we all would is go after easy wins so mm. we need to go after the tough stuff. Mm. So we need to go after Apple. We need to go after Google. We need to go after the uh, Starbucks. We need to go after the big conglomerates and say, okay, well, you, you know, this is, this is your tax arrangement. Is it legal? And we need to tax people. We need to tax businesses for the sales of the products and services they make in this country. And that doesn't happen at the moment. Do you think there's ever going to be an inclination to do that, though? Because, I mean, there's, there's, there's a part of me who is incredibly suspicious. How much of the government is tied into, you know, these big corporations? I'll give you an example. It always seems to be that a person is in government, they're a minister, they then retire and then they take a cushy job as an advisor at one of these big companies earning a lot of money. And you think, well, that's not direct corruption, but is it indirect? Well, the revolving door is, is very pernicious yeah. and, and uh, there's... there's some ideas, there's people had some ideas around how, how you do this. One, one of the ideas that I heard recently was uh, anything that you earn above a certain amount five years after you leave government is paid back to the Treasury. Mm. Mm. So, so I absolutely agree with you, but uh, I, I, I think it's, 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 not, it's not in the discourse. You know, it's not, not particularly in the public discourse, is it? We seem to have had our, 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 our discourse 
guided towards looking at something else, and you guys have had some experience with this lately, yeah. with, with looking at what they call rights. Mm. Yeah. So we're, we're focused more on rights. And I just think that humans, humans want a lot more than just to be consumers with rights. Yeah. You know, we need we need much more. Though we're creative, we're nurturing people. We need some more uh, uh, connection to each other. Um, we need more ownership. We need businesses. We need a patch of land. We need community. We need faith. Um, we need many many things, um, which seem to have been substituted by. And I'm not. This isn't it, 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 having the argument about whether these rights should or shouldn't exist, but it just seems to me that they seem to have taken a primacy in the discourse. Whereas the things that have nourished us as humans for millennia seem to have almost disappeared from the discourse. But what these things require is ownership. Uh, and, and I think where we seem to be going is that we have uh, a society uh, which be, is being pushed towards consumerism. Mm. So, so you become a consumer rather than an owner. And I think it's very interesting when you talk about the discourse, we talk about what what you know, what, what your distrust, if you like, of politicians is, is everybody thinks it, but yeah. nothing is being done about it. We mm. don't read about it so much. We don't see it in too many places. Why is that? Why are we, why are we focused on a, one certain set of considerations uh, and not these at least equally important considerations? That's why we started the show, is we're trying to have conversations about things that a lot of people think but aren't aren't able to express. And we're uh, going to try to bring down the government from the inside. <laughs> I don't think they from need the your... I don't, think they need, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they need your help. <laughs> <laughs> so they did a fantastic true. job all on their own. <laughs> but listen, Mike, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you uh, entirely expectedly, I should say. The last question we always ask is, what's the one thing that no one's talking about that we ought to be talking about? Well, I think I think I'll probably, I'll probably hit the nail on the head there. The, 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 <laughs> Very uh, modest and yeah. humble there. Yeah, uh, I think yeah, I've yeah. smashed that out of the park. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Oops. Can you edit? <laughs> Anton, you get that out, won't you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, just just basically that we're we're losing the things that 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 give us a sense of belonging, that give us a sense of meaning. Mm. Um, and and does anyone talk about meaning anymore? Everything's valued, isn't it? Yeah. Everything, yeah, yeah. Jordan Peterson talks about meaning quite a lot. Which, yeah. yeah. Mm, Not a fan. No. Look, look at your face. No. <laughs> look at that. He, uh, he he does talk about meaning though. Say what you like. Yeah, I think in a, I think in not in not to, in a way that uh, that I would that I particularly relate to. He's he's, ob he's obviously got an audience, but uh, I think yeah, no, he's not for me. <laughs> well, on that triggering note, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We will this is going to be terrible. The comments, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, follow Mike uh, on Twitter. He always tweets and retweets interesting stuff. As always, follow us at TriggerPod on all the social media. Give us an iTunes review. Most important of all, uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel and click that bell button next to the subscribe button so that you know when the video is released. Thank you very much for watching, and we will see you in a week from now. Absolutely, and also as well, uh, YouTube have a, a lovely little habit of unsubscribing people. If you could please check that you're subscribed, and if you have, if you have been unsubscribed, give us a tweet, and uh, we will we will complain to YouTube, and they will ignore us. But anyway, guys, uh, thank you very much, and we'll see you next week. Bye bye.
Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.